Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital and AstraZeneca. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with your host, Dr. Anise Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about nuclear medicine and cancer management with Dr. Darko Pushtar. Dr. Pushtar is an associate professor of radiology and biomedical imaging at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology. Darko, maybe we can start off by you telling us a little bit about yourself and about what you do. So I am nuclear radiologist. That means I have received the training in general radiology and nuclear medicine. In my case, I did that both at the Cornell and Sloan Kettering. And I'm certified by American Board of Radiology and American Board of Nuclear Medicine. I also have a science degree from Mayo Clinic. And uh, I provide clinical service and I conduct research in general nuclear medicine, PET-CT, and nuclear medicine therapy and theranostics, which we'll explain in a minute. So so let, let's kind of break down some of those, those things. So, you know, tell our audience a little bit more about what exactly is nuclear medicine. Yes. So we do uh, use radioactive tracers to detect uh, cancer, monitor cancer, and treat cancer. So radioactive traces are chemical compounds in which one or more atoms have replaced by radioisotope in the process that we call labeling. So these chemical compounds participate in body functions that are usually altered by cancer. And uh, we have two options. One is to label the radioisotope with a gamma rays, in which case we can produce images or we can... uh, we can use radioisotopes that emit the high energy particles, in which case we can kill the cancer. So so it sounds like nuclear medicine has a role to play both in diagnostics as well as in therapeutics. So let's look at the diagnostics to begin with. You know, many of us have heard about PET scans. Is is that really the main modality that's used in nuclear medicine for cancer? And tell us a little bit more about how that works. Yeah, you are absolutely right. Uh, PET-CT is really the main modality used uh, for cancer diagnostics. And it's a basically hybrid machine or hybrid scanner that consists of the CT scanner, which is X-ray machine that produces 3D map of body density, and of the PET scanner, which is basically a gamma ray detector machine that, again, gives us 3D map of uh, tracer distribution in the body. And then at the end, you fuse CT and PET images to get uh, images that show both uh, anatomy and function in the normal tissue and in the cancer. Do all cancer patients get a PET CT or is this only for particular patients? Uh, well, it would depend from cancer to cancer, but usually PET scans. Uh, in most cancers, but not in all, I use for more advanced uh, patients uh, with cancer. So those are the patients that uh, the cancer is either very large locally, it is spread to the nodes nearby to the cancer site, or, or has metastasized to distant body sites. And so the PET scan really gives us an idea of how far the cancer has spread. Is that right? 
Absolutely. And the main advantage of the PET scan is that can detect uh, very small lesions that are not visible on the conventional imaging like a CAT scan or MRI. But then you also mentioned that um, the same nuclear medicine technologies can be used in the therapeutic arena. So tell us more about that. Yeah, so this is very exciting development. Uh, I mean, for years we have uh, treated cancers, but it was mostly limited to the iodine treatment for thyroid cancer. But now we are getting many new exciting compounds uh, for the prostate cancer, for the neuroendocrine tumors, and probably would spread to other cancers as well. There are two types of uh, uh, therapies uh, that we conduct. Uh, One is uh, if we use uh, a chemical compound that uh, emits these high-energy particles to kill uh, the cancer, but we do imaging still with a conventional PET scan, which is usually maps the glucose. It's called fluorodisoxyglucose. And then there is a new exciting process, which is called teranostic, in which we can use the same chemical compound, which is important to function of cancer, which are labeled either for with the isotopes that can be detected uh, by uh, uh, gamma ray detectors and give us imaging, or it can be labeled with the high energy particles and kill the cancer. So two, probably the most common examples that are probably even known to our audience is a Dotatate, or now known as Lutotera, is the treatment for neuroendocrine cancers. So if we label them with some isotopes like gallium-68, we'll get images, but we can label with other uh, isotopes like lutetium, in which case we can kill the cancer. And uh, what is up and coming, and many prostate cancer patients are waiting for that eagerly, is to get uh, uh, both imaging and treatment with prostate-specific membrane antigen. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like these technologies, if you're able to identify a specific antigen, a specific protein um, on a particular cancer and target that with a particle um, that can kill it, it would seem to me that this would be a very specific way to kill cancer cells. Is that right? Uh, You are correct. So in most cases, our therapies uh, produce results that are comparable to other systemic therapy like a chemotherapy, but with uh, substantially lower adverse effects. So we kind of achieve similar results, but uh, with uh, less morbidity to our patients. Is this widely available or is this still in the research arena and undergoing clinical trials? Uh, both actually correct. So, as I mentioned before, we had uh, iodine uh, for treatment of thyroid cancer for decades. And uh, more recently, we have already clinically approved drug, which is called Zofigo, which is actually labeled, uh, radioactive labeled radium that can kill metastatic uh, disease from prostate cancer in the bone. And most recently, and obviously that got a lot of press attention, is a uh, Lutotera, which is again labeled a dotatate that can kill advanced neuroendocrine tumors. And so, so uh, for those that are approved, are, are, are those now taking over instead of being treated with chemotherapy? Are these now being treated with these theranostics? Uh, well, uh, I probably won't use uh, take over. It's more like uh, in, uh, they are getting incorporated in the treatment algorithms. My, our patients might, may have heard that there is something which is called 
National Comprehensive Network, which is a body that provides all these guidelines how the cancers are uh, treated, and uh, slowly the radionuclide therapies are getting incorporated in those guidelines, and they are used uh, when appropriate to treat uh, advanced or metastatic uh, cancer. So, so help me to understand that a bit better. I mean, because on the one hand, it sounds like this is so exciting, right? That that these um, theranostics, if they can truly target uh, these cancers and uh, kill them, and, and they're specific enough in the sense that you know this is how we we look for for cancers on imaging, um, and so we know that that. They're very specific and don't have all of the side effects of chemotherapy. Why haven't they been widely adopted yet? What's the downside? Well, uh, I mean, each cancer uh, and each cancer stage is kind of different. So, for example, in thyroid cancer, they were generally given after uh, thyroidectomy, which is removal basically of the thyroid. And uh, after radioactive iodine is given, most patients get cured. So thyroid cancer is relatively well-behaving cancer. So in this particular cancer, we can actually achieve cure. Uh, In some other cancers, for example, metastatic prostate cancer, when we we are going to use uh, radioactive isotopes, uh, uh, we'll have actually to prove that they have advantage versus other chemotherapy options, which requires large trials. And you have kind of, I don't know if our patients probably have heard for different lines of chemotherapy. Usually there is a first line, and then if there is a progression, second and third line and so on. So you will not only have to prove that they generally work, but you will have to find appropriate lines of the therapy for those uh, tracers. So this is now the process of active research. So uh, basically they have, in a way, similar limitations as a chemotherapy despite much uh, lower side effects is that if cancer is very bad like a, a, a advanced castrate resistant prostate cancer they will have less impact because the cancer is already so aggressive but if thyroid cancer for example in thyroid cancer the cancer is relatively well behind behaving then we actually can achieve cure so basically in the first situation we are, will buy time for the patients to give, give them longer survival, while in this uh, version of thyroid cancer, we'll actually achieve the cure. And so so it sounds like there's still clinical trials ongoing to kind of evaluate um, the optimal situation in which these theragnostics should be used. Is that right? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. So for the neuroendocrine tumors and prostate, we'll be actually evaluating what are the optimal situations to to be used. In the other cancers where there are still not uh, 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 agents that are either approved clinically or they are approved uh, for trials, uh, uh, there will be so-called early phase one and phase two studies to see whether they work at all. So at the moment, again, thyroid, prostate, and neuroendocrine tumors are where the radionuclide therapies have advanced the most. And, and are there other cancers that are on the horizon? Are there other advances that you're particularly excited about? Yeah, I just laughed a little bit about this because we are getting so many contacts from the pharmaceutical companies. There are almost uh, tracers for every cancer that you can imagine, but uh, they will have to pass through phase one and phase two trials to see which of these uh, tracers uh, would 
makes sense to develop as a clinical agents. And, and tell us a little bit more about the side effects of these theranostics, because it sounds like um, with them being so targeted, granted, you know, it makes a difference how aggressive the cancer is and how far gone it is. But do they have a lot of side effects? Because it seems to me that, you know, when we talk on the show about chemotherapy, chemotherapy really targets many cells, any rapidly dividing cell, whereas, um, which is why they cause things like hair loss and, and bone marrow suppression and so on, because these are rapidly dividing cells. But in the situation where a protein that is very specific uh, to a cancer can be targeted and almost like a laser uh, killed by these theranostics, one would imagine that the side effects are different, perhaps more local. Tell us about the side effects that patients who are undergoing therapies with these uh, agents might face. Uh, well, that's a little bit surprising, but uh, you have to remember before the tracer gets localized to the tissue of interest, it still stays for a while in the blood and to some extent goes to the bone marrow. So unfortunately, even for the radio tracers, although we have a less uh, toxicity to the bone marrow, uh, patients still can get bone marrow toxicity, which can drop their blood counts although this is way, way less pronounced with radionuclide tracers than with the conventional chemotherapy. Uh, and then uh, other side effects are a little bit more like uh, dependent on how they are eliminated from the body. So, for example, for neuroendocrine tumors, we worry about kidneys because that's uh, where they accumulate a lot when we get, they get eliminated or in the, let's say, zofigo for prostate cancer, we worry about... Uh, uh, GI tract because patients sometimes get, get GI side effects. So again, it's a degree of toxicity, but unfortunately, pretty much every systemic treatment would to some extent have a bone marrow side effects. All right. Well, we're going to take a short break for a medical minute. And when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about some of your work looking at COVID-19 vaccine and its effect on PET scans. Please stay tuned to learn more with my guest, Dr. Darko Pushtar. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, dedicated to advancing options and providing hope for people living with cancer. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. The American Cancer Society estimates that over 200,000 cases of melanoma will be diagnosed in the United States this year, with over 1,000 patients in Connecticut alone. While melanoma accounts for only about 1% of skin cancer cases, it causes the most skin cancer deaths. But when detected early, it is easily treated and highly curable. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as Yale Cancer Center and at Smilo Cancer Hospital, to test innovative new treatments for melanoma, the goal of the Specialized Programs of Research Excellence in Skin Cancer grant is to better understand the biology of skin cancer with a focus on discovering targets that will lead to improved diagnosis and treatment. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org you're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Darko Pushtar. 
We're talking about nuclear medicine, and before the break, we spent uh, some time talking about the role that nuclear medicine plays, both in diagnosis as well as potentially in the therapeutic management of cancer. But Dr. Pushtar has done some interesting work looking at the impact of COVID-19 vaccine on PET scans. So, Jarko, tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, thank you for this question. This is actually something very exciting to myself and my team members uh, because we kind of anticipated once the vaccines start uh, rolling out that we are going to see some uh, active lymph nodes at the site of a vaccine injection. So if, let's say, you would get injection in the left uh, deltoid muscle, you were expected to get activity in the left armpit. We kind of knew that that's going to happen because that was happening with influenza. And uh, since uh, in, in last fall, influenza was given relatively rapidly because uh, we, we were actually seeing for like a week or two, uh, several weeks actually in, uh, influenza uh, active uh, lymph nodes. So we got already prepared as soon as COVID vaccine uh, it rollout is expected to start collecting the data immediately. So we were collecting actually the data for all the patients uh, that uh, had the PET scan at Yale. We'll first uh, try to determine whether they had COVID vaccine or not, and then we'll assess whether they have active nodes or not. And in the beginning, it, the collection was relatively easy because all the vaccines were administered at Yale, so we could get a very precise understanding who had vaccine, who didn't have, when, which type of the vaccine, and so on. So we have collected those data as quickly as possible, and we published then a JAMA Oncology article on 68 patients that actually had vaccine, listing the frequency of positivity with Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, which is kind of useful to the practitioner, as we'll discuss. So tell me more. Uh, so what did you find and, and how, what happened? So basically, the, 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 the reason uh, why we really wanted to know this is because these lymph nodes theoretically can mimic cancer, which would be like a false positive finding, or they can mask cancer if we think that these are uh, nodes from the vaccine, but actually turn out to be a, a nodes from the cancer. So in order to avoid the errors, we kind of need everyone to participate, uh, both uh, the patients, uh, the providers that are administering the vaccines, the oncologists, and us in the nuclear medicine. So it, it is very important to know the date, the type, and the dose, and the site of vaccine administration. Also, it is uh, ve very important to avoid administering uh, the, the vaccine on the side where cancer might be. So, for example, if you have a right breast cancer, you shouldn't be getting vaccine in the right arm. You should be getting the vaccine in the left arm. Similar is for other cancers that will go to the axilla, like a melanoma. For other cancers like lymphoma, it gets more complicated because they can go to different nodes, but it's important to see whether, for example, they had the nodes in one versus the other armpit to determine which which arm which side would be more safe to inject and uh, for patients it is ex extremely important to tell the oncologist that they would be getting the vaccine 
if they have some of those cancers that I mentioned to tell the person who is giving to the vaccine to avoid the side, which can be confusing to the reader. And uh, when they get their PET questionnaire, which is like a survey that we administer prior to PET scan, and that's a good idea probably even if they didn't get the vaccine, they shouldn't just write what frequently happens just to see the chart or see the EPIC, but they should actually list if they have any acute symptoms, uh, some, especially something that looks like inflammation, and they also should uh, provide information when did they get vaccine, what kind of vaccine, and in which uh, side of the, uh, in the left or in the right arm. So, for example, our data have demonstrated that uh, those uh, reactive nodes that can either mimic or mask cancer are more common after second dose of the vaccine than after the first dose of vaccine, which you, you would kind of expect based on immune, immunologic phenomena that come with the vaccines. And we also found that they are a little bit more common with Moderna than with Pfizer vaccine. So how long does the... Um, the effect last on the PET scan. So, for example, let's say you got the vaccine today. Um, how long after that would you anticipate that you would still be able to see those enlarged lymph nodes by PET um, after today? Uh, that's a great question. And actually, when we did our original article, we couldn't answer that question because we had relatively a few patients. I mean, I cannot discuss uh, probably too much because we have to finish the analysis. So I don't want to be giving statements ahead of the statistician. But based on our preliminary data now of several hundred patients, it seems uh, that uh, 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 probably it would take uh, for at least, at least several weeks uh, for the vaccine effect to disappear. And it seems, again, I, this is probably too early because statisticians should say the final word, is that it lasts a little bit longer with Moderna than with Pfizer. Because, you know, I, I think that some of the things that you're saying make intuitive sense, right? If you uh, have a known uh, right breast cancer or a known uh, right arm melanoma, that getting an injection on that right side can certainly be confusing to a, a radiologist who's trying to interpret whether the lymph nodes look ugly because of the cancer or look ugly because of the vaccine. But the 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 other point, though, is that you may have gotten the shot without knowing that you also uh, were going to develop a cancer and then find the cancer later. And so that's where things get a, a little bit uh, tricky um, when one didn't know uh, about the other diagnosis. Oh, that's absolutely right. Uh, however, uh, most of the time when we do PET scans prior to actual diagnosis of cancer is for, for lung nodules. And uh, fortunately, lung cancer very, very rarely goes to the armpit. So in that situation, we'll know based on the uh, expected distribution of the cancer. It will be obviously more difficult if a patient eventually get diagnosed with a lymphoma, and uh, then uh, it could, in some time, there are unfortunately few cases that we couldn't really tell. Uh, but uh, although it looks really ominous, uh, it is relatively small number of cases that uh, after careful analysis, 
that we cannot determine what's going on. And those will have to closely follow up, obviously. So, you know, getting to the point of, of the people with lymphoma, for example, where, you know, it would be expected that you would have many enlarged lymph nodes, trying to distinguish that versus, uh, you know, response to a COVID vaccine must be pretty difficult. What, what kind of tools do you use as a nuclear medicine physician who interprets these scans to tell the difference one to the other? Or is this something that relies on a biopsy? Uh, I'm hoping that in most cases we will really uh, do not need the biopsy, and we actually we didn't commonly resort to biopsy at Yale because, for example, uh, the activity with the after vaccine is usually not very very high. So if patients have a, a disease like a diffuse large B cell lymphoma, those have way higher activity than it would be with a uh, with the axillary uh, that it would occur with the vaccine. Uh, the other thing is, a patient, for example, has disseminated disease. Uh, uh, it, at at that point, it may not be necessary to make a distinction for the axilla because if there are in all other locations of the body, it won't change the management. Uh, where I kind of see this could be really a problem if patient has a so-called low-grade lymphoma, which do not have very high activity, and that, and we find isolated uh, nodes in, uh, let's say, bilateral axillas. So then it 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 would be quite, then we'll presume, I guess, in one axilla that is uh, probably due to lymphoma, the one which is not injected. But in the injected axilla, will probably won't know unless, as you said, we do the biopsy. And and, and presumably you can tell the difference between enlarged lymph nodes that are due to benign conditions like sarcoid or other things versus the COVID vaccine on these PET scans. Is that right? Uh, in principle, yes, because sarcoid would tend to be in the nodes uh, uh, that are around the heart in the, in the area that we call mediastinum while the vaccine nodes would tend to be in armpit. Although this, the differentiation, again, is not absolute, but uh, since uh, uh, we still rarely image sarcoid, let's say, independently from the cancer, uh, that's way, way less common situation that uh, that would happen really to be a diagnostic dilemma. And so now that we're we're kind of in the, the, the uh, scenario where you know, people are now thinking about booster shots. Do you think that that's going to cause even more of a conundrum? Y you saw that, uh, you know, the, the lymph nodes were more reactive on PET after the second dose of the COVID vaccine. Do you think that's going to be the case after the third dose? Uh, well, that's a very interesting question. So far, I have seen only two cases after the booster. And one was active, the other was not active, but I didn't have dilemma because uh, based on the other characteristics of cancers, I could, uh, and knowing where the vaccine was, I, I was able to confidently say. But I would also want to bring another uh, interesting point, which we're actually going to investigate. Um, uh, we can view those nodes after vaccine as negative because it can uh, create a diagnostic confusion. 
but we are also hoping to investigate whether activity of these nodes actually can predict the efficacy of the vaccines. Mm. And uh, uh, this is, uh, for example, there is Israeli study, that, and they uh, showed that uh, uh, the activity in the nodes correlates with the level of anti-spike, which is that protein that is very important in COVID antibodies. So basically, there was a correlation between activity in these nodes and the uh, antibody levels, which in a way would reflect the potential level of protection that people would have. So maybe in the future, we can not only uh, be threatened by this uh, phenomena, but maybe we can even use to predict uh, what level of immunity cancer patients would achieve. Dr. Darko Pushtar is an associate professor of radiology and biomedical imaging at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital and AstraZeneca.